Is it possible to have a colorblind society given the prevailing narrative of diversity, equity, and inclusion and critical race theory in today's academia? Is DEI and CRT really racist? Does systemic racism really exist? And how far have we fallen away in America from Dr. King's vision of judging a person by their character instead of their skin color? Welcome to the Conservative Classroom, where we're teaching the truth and preserving our values. I'm your host, Mr. Webb, and I'm glad you're here. This podcast is a haven for conservative educators, parents, and patriots like you who believe in the importance of free speech, traditional values, and education without indoctrination. Each week, we dive into issues that are plaguing our education system and keeping you up at night. In each episode, we offer common sense ideas to improve education in our classrooms and communities. You may feel like you're the last conservative educator or parent, but I want you to know that you are not alone. By the way, if you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with a like-minded educator, parent, or patriot. Together, we can teach the truth and preserve our values. In today's episode, we have a conversation with a university professor and author who sheds light on the reality of DEI, CRT, and systemic racism in America. We also get to learn about his new book on the subject. Now let's get started. Today, I'm excited to welcome a special guest to the conservative classroom, Dr. Andre Archie, associate professor of ancient Greek philosophy at Colorado State University. Dr. Archie is here to discuss his book, The Virtue of Colorblindness. Dr. Archie, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. To start, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to delve into ancient Greek philosophy? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question. And in writing the book, The Virtue of Colorblindness, I sort of thought back, sort of reflected on my development. And so to begin, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. We moved to Colorado. I say we, my mom and my sisters, my parents divorced uh, before I was born. Uh, So I was about a year, one year, I think about year one, we moved to to Colorado, to Denver. Uh, My mom thought that uh, there were more opportunities for her and for her children, I think she was correct on that score. Um, raised uh, in Denver uh, proper, uh, went to local elementary school, uh, middle school, high school. Um, you know, we went we went to church on Sundays, uh, sometimes reluctantly, like most kids. Uh, but you know, looking back on it, it was very formative. Um, I learned a lot um, in terms of faith, et cetera. Perhaps we'll get into some of that. And so my, my, my upbringing was fairly standard, I would say. We weren't wealthy at all, sort of working class. Um, my mom introduced us to opportunities that we took advantage of. Uh, she was very conscious of our, our flourishing uh, as individuals. Um, she was very curious. We... Also, we were very curious. Um, I ended up following my sister, who wanted to be a vet, uh, to Colorado State University. So she was there. I followed her. 
she ended up doing other things, leaving the state. Uh, but I ended up enrolling um, as a freshman in college um, at Colorado State University, which is where I teach now. So it's sort of full circle. I ended up going uh, after my uh, undergraduate years at Colorado State University. I got my uh, master's and PhD from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And then during that time, I studied abroad at the Institute of Philosophy in Leuven, Belgium. And so I had a great educational experience. And just to back up a bit, mm-hmm. when I was in uh, college uh, at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, about an hour north of Denver, I met a couple of individuals. One in particular, his name was Bill Hervey. And I talk about him in the book, but he was very um, influential in terms of my being introduced to the Greeks and ancient political theory. So that really laid the groundwork for my interest in the uh, ancients, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, uh, etc. So that was really the beginning. And it wasn't until I uh, went to graduate school uh, did that interest sort of blossom in a way that um, um, has been very influential for me as a scholar and, and for my personal life. And so uh, to make a, a long story short, once I got my master's and PhD, I was writing my dissertation. It took me a couple of years. I kind of messed around a little bit, probably should have finished it up sooner. But in any case, I ended up applying for uh, a position at Colorado State University, my alma mater. Uh, they just so happened they were looking for a Greek specialist. Um, I interviewed and I got the position. And so, like I said, it's sort of full circle. I got my undergraduate degree there. Uh, went off to the East Coast, got my master's and PhD, and then ended up uh, back in Colorado. So that's a little bit about my uh, background, sort of the beginnings of of my academic interest. And so um, that sort of accounts for where I am today. So what led you from from teaching uh, ancient Greek philosophy to writing your book? So the the book is titled "The Virtue of Colorblindness." Mm-hmm. So tell us what is in your book and how did philosophy influence uh, what you decided to write that book? Yeah, so I've always been interested in ideas. Obviously, I'm a um, philosopher of ancient Greek philosophy, so I think ideas are extremely important. And so over the years, I've taught various courses in political theory. I'm also African-American, so I'm I'm sensitive to discussions in the public square regarding race, regarding equity, uh, regarding equality, and how those issues intersect in terms of our founding, our founding principles. Mm -hmm. And so... My interest, and at the time it was only an interest, I wanted to, well, I started thinking about, well, this is an awesome combination. So we have African-Americans who have benefited from a tradition in which there are certain principles that have been instrumental and they're being treated equal before the law. Of course, it was a struggle. And, and there's nothing perfect. We continue to uh, realize that ideal that 
all men are created equal, all people are created equal, or at least equal before the law, right? Because it doesn't guarantee equal outcomes, and I don't think it should. So these principles uh, were always attractive to me, both in terms of ancient Greek philosophy, in terms of the African-American quest uh, to be treated equal before the law, um, and my interest in public discussions, things that are taking place, discussions that are taking place in the public square. So I started writing articles, book reviews, tying these uh, threads together, trying to tie them together in such a way that we can understand or at least try to understand the trajectory of our, of our discussions regarding race and identity and education and equality. So this book tries to weave each of those conversations into sort of a, a, a fabric which I think most people can, can find um, something in there that is appealing. It might be provocative or, or upsetting, but nonetheless, I try to make the case that ultimately in the public square, there needs to be a common narrative And that common narrative is what makes us Americans in terms of basic beliefs regarding basic principles that this country was founded upon. Because if we if we if we're reading off of different pages in terms of principles, I think that leads to the sorts of discussions that we hear today, both in academia and in other institutions, even in corporate America. I think they've been captured by DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism. So each of those racial ideologies, DEI, et cetera, are trying to offer a narrative that's counter to the narrative that I'm promoting in my book. And, and, and again, that narrative that I'm promoting is grounded in our founding American principles, and I show how these principles informed Frederick Douglass's quest to get African-Americans to be treated equal before the law. He sort of anticipates what MLK does. And they each do this by appealing to the Western philosophical tradition. And so I tie all of these threads together, and I think I make a pretty compelling argument in the book, The Virtue of Colorblindness. And so to make a long story short again, mm-hmm. I think my book um, is, is compelling precisely because the discussions that are being taken, uh, that are being taken place um, in the public square um, is in need of a, of a counter narrative, one that doesn't simply focus on race. Let's go back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. and his vision of basically a colorblind society. And he wanted everyone, I mean, correct me if I if I misstate anything here, he wanted everyone to be judged on the content of their character instead of the color of their skin. I feel like that was a pivotal moment. And I can't figure out how we got from that to where we are today. And I know you've heard the term, the term reverse racism. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it seems like the racism just goes in a different direction nowadays, but it's still racism. So how did we get from Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, vision to where we are today? It seems like we're so far away from that. Yes, we we are so far away from that. And we, we shouldn't give up hope because I think that a good number of Americans are starting to see exactly what you just spoke about in terms of once upon a time, it was uncontroversial uh, to talk about being colorblind and wanting to be colorblind. I mean, I'm of a certain generation, perhaps you are too. That was the ideal is to judge a person by the content of their character, not by their ethnicity, their color. And that was something that was sort of drilled into us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're ignorant of the past. Not at all. But we shouldn't be, we, we shouldn't be hampered by our past. We shouldn't be imprisoned by our past. We can be quite aware of it. And so again, this idea of a common narrative becomes so important. And so the story that I tell about Frederick Douglass and Dr. Martin Luther King speaks to that narrative of colorblindness, not being ignorant of the past, but judging people based upon their actions, their character. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't appreciate ethnicity, right? I like jazz, but I recognize that jazz is universal. Anyone can play jazz, not just black jazz musicians, right? right? I mean, that would be absurd. And so to answer directly your, your, your question, I think we started to shift in a very pernicious way in the 80s because there we had multiculturalism. And I'm not talking about, you know, recognizing uh, cultural particularities. You know, we have St. Patrick's Day. We have uh, Cinco de Mayo. I mean, all of that's fine. But I'm talking about the hard edge multiculturalism in which groups want to be recognized. We don't recognize groups in terms of our founding, our principles, our constitutionalism. We recognize individuals. And of course, individuals can work together in groups. But when you look at that second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, it's individuals, the pursuit of life and liberty and happiness. We're talking about individuals. And so I think in the 80s, we started to turn away from that tradition And we got some of this uh, inkling of what we have today. We got some of it during the O.J. Simpson trial. Now, now notice, so O.J. Simpson trial, and then we have uh, uh, George Floyd. So during the O.J. Simpson trial, we had this doctrine called critical race theory. It sort of emerged out of critical legal studies, but it was sort of a marginal doctrine. theoretical um, body of ideas. But I don't know if you remember, but during the time there was talk of jury nullification uh, because a group of scholars, uh, many of them uh, African-American or people of color um, and and some white scholars argued that, well, the system is is rigged against uh, uh, O.J. Simpson in that case, but uh, against these defendants in particular because of their race. 
And so you got discussions there of jury nullification based upon race. So the jurors would not perform their or should not perform their duty uh, because the system overall is stacked against uh, these defendants of color, African-Americans in particular. So if you fast forward a bit, you, you, you get more inklings of this as we got the unfortunate killings of, of several African-Americans. Uh, and the most famous, of course, is, or the most infamous, is um, George Floyd. And so I think these ideologies, in particular critical race theory, uh, uh, emerges out of uh, the academic shadows. And it really sort of dominates the public square. It dominates academia still today, uh, corporate boardrooms, the legacy media. And so I think when you combine critical race theory, the idea that America is systemically racist and that the only way that African-Americans, African-American, African-Americans can advance in American society is if that advancement is allowed by an upper middle class white population along with working class whites. And so what I'm rehearsing for you is mm-hmm. a theory called uh, interest convergence. And this is Derek Bell, the father of critical race theory. And so I have a chapter uh, devoted to that idea. So the idea is that, for example, in 1954, when we had Brown versus Board of Education, when that decision was handed down, um, which outlaw separate but equal, Derek Bell says, well, that, that was only made possible because it serves the interest of white people. And he says, well, it, it serves the interest of white people because during the time, so we're talking about late, late 50s, early 60s, uh, during the time you had these third world countries emerging from colonialism. And so we have democracy competing with communism. And so he says, well, the white population in the United States, leadership, uh, were very conscious of the representation of democracy. And if, if the world looked at us, these third world countries looked at us and, and saw how we treated uh, uh, its black citizens, African-Americans, perhaps they would be uh, persuaded by communism, would be attracted to communism uh, that much more. And so Derek Bell says, well, essentially that, that decision uh, wasn't done because of the kind heartedness uh, and the fact that, that the majority of whites had evolved in terms of their racial uh, points of view. It was simply instrumental. It was simply to placate um, the, the the representation of democracy in terms of how blacks um, um, should be seen, and the fact that the white majority wanted to keep blacks connected to the system uh, and to at least give them some semblance semblance of hope, um, as opposed to completely despairing uh, that their condition would ever would ever. Um, uh, get better. So Derek Bale with this idea of interest convergence is completely uh, skeptical in terms of any sort of advancement and the reasons for advancement or why white people would allow blacks to advance. He simply says it's only possible for blacks to advance uh, if it serves the interest of the white majority. So hopefully that makes sense. I mean, I can say more about that. So, We've talked a little about DEI and CRT, yep. and this podcast is uh, the conservative classroom, 
So the the target audience here, most of my listeners are uh, teachers and parents. Mm-hmm. So how how is DEI and CRT? How is it harmful to students? Whether it's uh, K through twelve education or whether it's you know at the college level. Well, it's very harmful because the assumption of both diversity, equity, and inclusion and critical race theory, they're both harmful because what it assumes is that there are victims and victimizers. The victims tend to be people of color, African-Americans in particular, and victimizers, white people. And so that's the assumption. You look at the literature, that's the assumption. And so you have a case, and I talk about this case. There was a case in New York at the Fieldston School, private school. The, 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 I think it was the lower school principal uh, divided the kids into groups according to their perceived privilege. So you had white kids, Hispanic kids, uh, black kids, and they would have to talk about privilege and how they might be privileged compared to some of their classmates. But I mean, you can imagine, I mean, this is just despicable. I mean, she was later let go, but it's that mentality in which we put individuals and not just individuals. We're talking about kids in this case. We're talking about young kids. That's quite abusive psychologically. It's very dangerous at that level, at the primary level. But if you talk about middle school and high school, you get the same sort of mentality. They're being taught that America is systemically racist. No matter what you do as a person of color or as an African-American, you're not going to succeed. Or if you do succeed, it's because white people let you succeed. And so really you have no agency. And so this is not only dangerous and debilitating for people of color, for African-Americans, but for white Americans who are well-intentioned. What are they supposed to do? They might not even be aware of the fact that they're racist, right? That's what Ibram X. Kendi argues. He says that white people aren't even aware that through their daily actions, they're subordinating people of color. And so it's dangerous because DEI and and CRT, they're dangerous because it's an ideology that reduces everything to race and power dynamics. It says that the typical or the nuclear family formation is a white construct. It demeans religion because religion is socially constructed to subordinate or to have blacks or people of color subordinate to whites. And so it's a reductionist philosophy that equates our, our cherished institutions, our, our civic organizations, all of that is reduced to race and the poverty dynamics that they claim uh, subordinate uh, blacks to. And so that's why it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And to top it all off, they disregard American founding principles. And so they don't want people to be treated equal before the law. They want to discriminate. Positive discrimination is what they call it. They want to discriminate for the, for the sake of correcting perceived past wrongs. 
And so when, when you have that philosophy and you have the sort of power that people like Kindy have, it becomes all the more dangerous because children, both at the elementary and the secondary level, students, um, are are being taught this. And I mean, if you're taught this at a very young age, you're not critical enough to, to question it. So it becomes natural for them in terms right. of assumptions. And so that's why it's dangerous. And I'm not sure if you've read the book, uh, Brutal Minds by Dr. Stanley Ridgely. I have um, I had him on the podcast and his book is about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, DEI and CRT at the college level, how the universities are brainwashing students into this into this uh, this thought process. Mm-hmm. So, if we want to call that brainwashing, that's okay. What? But what's the motive behind this brainwashing? Like it seems to me like if we could just all say that we're equals and get along and get on with our lives. It seems to me like we would all be better off. So I can't stand the, the, I can't understand the motive behind wanting to push DEI and CRT. Well, I, I think it has a lot to do with power. And I think you have some true believers who, who really disdain America and what it stands for. So let's take those who are interested in power. I think there's a certain, there's a certain, you know, if you're, if you're given a budget and you have certain timetables in terms of promoting DEI or critical race theory in terms of, let's say, certain types of faculty, typically faculty of color um, or other positions in which we have a designated role for that person to play, but it has to be played by a particular ethnic group. So I think when you have money, when you have a budget behind those sorts of goals and timetables, it, it, it feeds itself. And so you have those who want to be a part of that. And so I I think there's a power dynamic there. And and also that those goals and timetables are attached to um, certain incentives and so I know, for example, here locally at, at, at our liberal arts college here locally in Colorado, a very good liberal arts college, actually, um, they're, a, they're an anti-racism institution. And they make it explicit that they have goals and timetables and there are penalties for faculty who fail um, to reflect these goals and timetables in terms of race and ethnicity. They, they get, they, they're penalized. Um, in terms of their pay, in terms of recognition. And so there's a whole sort of institutional apparatus behind uh, the promotion of DEI and um, anti-racism. The other group are true believers. I think that they truly feel as if America is not worth uh, saving, or at least it needs to be radically reformed. And these people typically tend to be um, opposed to religion. Uh, They're opposed to merit. Uh, They're opposed to the nuclear family. They're opposed to all all of the traditional institutions that we've we've taken for granted in the past and that are being questioned now, but we took for granted in the past. And those institutions weren't perfect. 
Of course not. But we, we, we have the ability as a country, and again, I think it's because of those founding principles, we have the ability um, to reform, to get better, right? Not reform radically the institutions that we take for granted, but to, to recognize that there are certain limitations and deficiencies. And so I think we've done a heck of a job with, with, with those sorts of reforms. But this group that, that there are true believers, I mean, we, we have to figure out how to deal with them. And I think the best way to do it is to, first of all, we need to outlaw um, CRT, uh, DEI. I think we need to monitor it if we can't exactly outlaw it. I think lawsuits need to be uh, initiated left and right, right in order to push back against um, these ideologies that really have the potential of dividing Americans in a way that uh, perhaps could be violent. Right. At the very least, you know, the government maybe should say, if you're a university and you are pushing these divisive ideologies, then we're going to withhold funding from you. So, That's right. You know, you can do that without, quote unquote, outlawing it. And, you know, the money and the power that's a pretty big motivator there. That's right. And, and, and we can do that. And, and, you know, DeSantis has done some of this in Florida, you know, that can be done. And, and, and for the most part in red States, right. And, and with public institutions, but the problem is with these private institutions uh, that have huge endowments and you, you can imagine who I'm speaking about. I mean, you know, you take the Ivy league first of all, and then, but you have these other uh, institutions that are pretty high up on the pecking order. Um, how do we check those institutions? That's the issue, I think, um, that's, that's pressing. And I want to devote more time to that in my scholarship because I think that's where the issue is. The public universities, we can hold them accountable uh, in terms of, of funding. But with private institutions, Ivy Leagues, um, top liberal arts colleges, now, that's a bit more difficult, but I think it's, it's those other institutions that are quite influential in terms of uh, these pernicious racial ideologies. So let me ask you a question, uh, specifically as an African-American. Mm-hmm. In your view, does systemic racism exist, or if you put your nose to the grindstone and you work hard, can you make it in America? Can you speak to that for me? Yeah, I I do not think America is systemically racist. I don't. I think that, you know, I'm not going to give you a particular date, uh, but I think, you know, uh, 1954, the Civil Rights Act, I think that was very influential. We we started to see certain trends in terms of the middle class. I think there was a sort of a setback, if you will, in terms of the Great Society, but I won't get into that. Um, But ultimately, I think that as you say, if you work hard, you follow the success sequence, I think your chances are pretty good that you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be a billionaire. Perhaps you will. I mean, I think those are, those cases are exceptional, but you're going to be happy. You're going to be happy. Um, but you know what it takes, what's, what's most important that we don't talk about is the family. And I think that, and I have a chapter on this in, in the book, The Virtue of Colorblindness, but the family is at the root of so many of the racial issues that we're dealing with particularly the African-American family. And I speak to this in a way that's sympathetic, but still yet critical 
because I think many of the issues that are, are instrumental in terms of pushing DEI and critical race theory and, and anti-racism is the fact that many black families are broken. And so when you have families that are broken, the young, they're, they're reaching out, they're yearning for a sense of self, for a sense of wholeness. And unfortunately, a lot of African-American young people latch on to affinity groups, these racial ideologies or gangs. And so I think that if we could address some of the issues that we find in the African-American family, and we're starting to see this in other white working class communities, but if we can address some of those familial issues, I think a lot of these racial ideologies, they're still going to be out there, but there's not going to be any, any, anyone or very few who, who are attracted to them. Because I really do think it, it, it speaks to, if you will, um, uh, an emptiness. Um, and so I think the family has to be discussed in this context because it's a driver um, in terms of, of why people are receptive to these divisive ways of thinking. And when you mention the, the broken families, are you talking about um, the single mothers? Exactly. Single mothers, the yeah, lack of that, a father. Am I missing anything there? Is that mainly it? Just no father in the home? I, I think that's mainly it for black males. And here I'm, I'm referring to the research of uh, uh, Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia, the Marriage Project. And he's, he's done many studies. He cites studies. There are other studies that indicate that for African-Americans without a father is, is, is really decisive in terms of flourishing. And the research shows that... Uh, Young black women, uh, of course, they're affected by a lack of a father, but um, it's the mother that's instrumental for uh, young black women. Uh, but it's the father in particular, as, as, as it relates to black males, that, that are instrumental. And even Roz Chetty at um, 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 Stanford, Harvard, I'm, I'm forgetting where Raj is, but... Uh, an academic, uh, he's done some research, and he points out that uh, even even in communities where you have an absence of fathers, you you, you have more delinquency and crime and suspension from school. Uh, and so, if you have a home without a father, because not all families, I mean, there there are issues. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was young, but if you're in a community that at least uh, consists of fathers, you know, proportionately. Um, right. Is, is instrumental. So, so I do think that um, it's fatherlessness uh, in, in the home that is, is instrumental for a lot of uh, ills that we, we, we experience, um, and, which, and, and, and which leads to the receptiveness, I think, um, to a lot of these racial ideologies among the young. And uh, switching gears just a little bit, uh, your book just came out uh, January 2nd, is that right? Yes. That's right. That's right. So it's it's brand new. Why should uh, teachers and parents, um, educators, college students, why should they check out your book? 
I think it's important that they read my book because it points a way forward. You know, a lot of conservatives can be skeptical, can be um, not as optimistic, if you will, and I understand that. But I think my book charts a nice balance between that skepticism and optimism. And so I try to give arguments that are accessible to anyone who is open-minded, but who is dismayed by what they're hearing in their children's classrooms, what they're hearing on um, seeing or hearing on social media. And I try to give a story or tell a story regarding why, as Americans, we are exceptional. What is it about our principles that connect us with the Western philosophical tradition? What was it that Thomas Jefferson saw and read that led to that famous second paragraph of of the Declaration of Independence? So I try to tell that story within the context of the abolitionists, Frederick Douglass in particular, and how that anticipates uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and his work, and the celebration of liberty and freedom that we should all take for granted and and take joy, if you will, in in our God-given rights uh, to live flourishing lives. And so all of that is sort of a roadmap, if you will. I, I like to think of it as sort of a roadmap. And I think all of that is laid out in my book in a way that will be helpful. And, and f- first and foremost, there's a chapter that basically says, it's, it's titled Comfortable Racism. And so I don't want us to become satisfied with, with this idea that we need to discriminate to stop discrimination. I refer to that as a type of comfortable racism. We just throw our hands up and we say, fine, let's learn about the past. Let's correct for it even if that means discriminating against other people. I argue against that in a way that is personal, but also intellectual. So, again, the book is a roadmap, if you will. It will help others to see and to articulate a vision that is more uh, um, uniting as opposed to divisive. And last but not least... I emphasize over and over again that we have to speak up. That's the key. We have to speak up because people congratulate me. They say, wow, you're brave, but I can't be the only one because there's nothing particularly special about me. Everyone has to speak up and tell the truth because we all notice. If we notice, we need to speak up and tell the truth because who gets affected? It affects our children, what they're learning. It affects our country. And it even affects uh, our sense of self. So The Virtue of Colorblindness, it was published on the 2nd. It's widely available, and I hope your readers enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to, to reading it myself. Now, I know it just came out, but uh, have you faced any blowback from uh, your liberal university colleagues <laughs> or from the black community? Uh, not yet. Not yet, but I'm, I'm sort of girding myself for... Um, <laughs> Some of that. I mean, my institution is quite um, committed to free speech, and I appreciate that. My department is committed to free speech. I'm a professional. Uh, I love teaching. I love my students. I teach at my alma mater. 
uh, Colorado State University. So I haven't received any negative feedback. Uh, perhaps I will. No doubt I will. But I would think, at least for my university, it will be sort of a friendly uh, challenging of my position, which is fine. I, I think that's great. In terms of the black community, um, I've gotten a lot of thank yous. And then, of course, I've gotten the opposite, but nothing extreme. So so right. hopefully um, I'll have a job when I go back next semester. <laughs> uh, and what's the one thing you want the listener to remember if they don't remember anything else about this episode? I would say the the one thing would be if if you work hard and you play by the rules, you can be successful. Now that bothers a lot of people because they don't feel that way. But I truly believe in my heart, if you work hard, you play by the rules, you will be successful. Now success is defined differently by different people. But I would say a flourishing life consist of that success sequence. And by following that success success sequence, I think anyone can achieve what it is they set out to achieve, within limits, of course. And so the takeaway is our system works. We have amazing principles that continue to animate our daily lives. And I would encourage people to remember that, to remember that, that our country works. And I would encourage everyone to check out your book. I think work hard and play by the rules and you'll be successful, by the way. I think that is a wonderful – I wrote that down because I didn't want to forget it. I think that's <laughs> great advice. Yep. But anyway, I, I want folks to check out your book. I will include a link. Uh, I'm an Amazon affiliate, so I can include a link. So if they're listening to this podcast and they want to check out your book, they can just go right to the show notes, click on the link and purchase their very own copy of the book. You'll be helping out Dr. Archie, and you'll be helping out the conservative classroom. And is there anything that you want to promote or plug? This is your time to promote uh, social media, any upcoming projects, future books, or past books, anything you want to promote. This is your time to do that. Um, I would I would just say, first and foremost, uh, I, I encourage everyone to go out and purchase my book, The Virtue of Colorblindness. I put a lot of work into it. Uh, I think it's quite engaging. So, so that first and foremost. But I would also recommend that you look at some of my previous work. Um, you can find that National Review, Modern Age, uh, other publications. But, you know, to sort of get a sense of my train of thought, because a lot of that is sort of captured uh, uh, in this book that was just published. So acquaint yourself with my, my previous work, perhaps both academically uh, and some, some of the pieces that I've written uh, for other publications like National Review. So, uh, but again, first and foremost, please buy, please read closely The Virtue of Colorblindness, my latest book. And I'd love to have you back on the podcast um, once I've got a sure. chance to read the book. And uh, once the book's been out there a while, maybe you can come back and, and tell us how well, things are going. Well, I'd love to, Joey. I mean, this is, you, you've asked great questions. I mean, it, it, it's really helpful to sort of get me to think about uh, the topics I've covered. And so I, I appreciate uh, your questions. It's been fun. Thank you. I've certainly enjoyed it. And 
I know my listeners appreciate your insight and uh, things that you've 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 taught us today about diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, CRT. We talked about systemic race. We covered a lot of topics, right? Right. But at the same time, we just scratched the surface of this very exactly. important subject. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Joey. I appreciate it. Have a good one. That's it for today's episode of The Conservative Classroom. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it and learned something. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. That would really help the podcast out. Most importantly, share this podcast with a like-minded educator, parent, or patriot. You can also connect with us on social media and share your thoughts on today's topic by sending me an email at theconservativeclassroom at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you feel that education without indoctrination and teaching the truth is important to preserve traditional values, then support my efforts to keep the conservative classroom running. I'm a full-time teacher and dad and part-time podcaster. I invest a lot of hours at my own hard-earned money each week to bring you quality content, but I need your help. Check out the links in the show notes and on the website to support the podcast with a one-time or recurring monthly donations. Every little bit helps. You can also visit our merch store to get your own clothing, coffee mugs, stickers, backpacks, book bags, and more with the Conservative Classroom logo or one of our many other conservative slogans, such as Age Appropriate Does Not Equal Banning Books, Defund the Teachers' Unions, Keep Politics Out of the Classroom, and more. If you want to support common sense and education without pushing your politics, check out our products with the red schoolhouse logo on it. We know it's hard to be openly conservative in some school districts, but your silent show of support will let you know that you are doing the right thing. Until next time, this is Mr. Webb reminding you that you are not alone. See you next time on The Conservative Classroom. Teaching the truth, preserving our values.